So again, we're going to, to dig in our study of Acts. Everything that we stand for, everything we claim to stand for, comes from the apostles. We claim to be apostolic, meaning that we derive our doctrine from what the apostles teach. It comes from the idea that we are built upon, like Paul said in Ephesians 2, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the key, uh, chief cornerstone. And so we're studying this book of Acts, this first this history book of the first century church, to understand exactly what it means to be apostolic in the 21st century. Okay, I hope you're enjoying it. I'm enjoying going through it myself. It's making me slow down and read it. And not just, not just speed read, but to study it and to dig it out. And so we're going to continue that tonight, picking up in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. The Bible says, Then came he, referring to Paul, to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there, named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed. But his father was a Greek which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. This passage of Scripture introduces us to a young man that we commonly refer to as Timothy. You'll remember Paul would write two letters addressed in your Bible to Timothy. First and second Timothy are written to the young man I just described to you. Now, if you'll go back a few days to the last, to last Wednesday night's Bible study, you'll remember that the disciples or the apostles at Jerusalem had met together and had decided that they would not put the Gentile Christians under the yoke of Jewish law. Okay? So even though there were those that believed that Jewish or uh, Christians should be circumcised whether they were Jewish or Gentile, doesn't matter, they should live according to Roman law. The elders had decided, you don't have to do that, okay? Yet, it almost seems like a, um, a paradox here, almost seems like we, we, uh, we're, we're backtracking a little bit, because we're now introduced to a young man named Timothy, his mom is a Jew, his dad is a Greek, as such, this young man has not lived under Jewish law. Uh, he's gotten a taste of it. He knows a little bit, but there are certain things he has not done, circumcision being one of them. And yet Paul looks at Timothy and says, I think you ought to get circumcised. Okay? Now, again, very interesting subject to broach because uh, this young man is not eight days old. He's not a baby. This is a grown man. And, and, and he is being told, basically, that you need to do this. And the question may arise, well, wait a minute. Why is Paul living a double standard? No. Here in the first three verses of Acts 16, we see something that has got to be a principle that we as Christians in the 21st century live by. It's called Christian liberty. Okay? There are, now, there are absolutes in the Bible. There are things that God says, I hate this, I love this, do what I love, stay away from what I hate. There are abominations, there are things. We're not talking about those. We're talking here about something that Paul understood for Timothy's sake. If he did not do some things according to the law, that he, he, would, he would be a stumbling block to people he was trying to minister to. As a descendant, as part Jew, his mom's a Jew, 
Because he was uncircumcised, he would not be able to minister in certain circles and bless certain people. Okay, Paul understood this. And so he said, hey, technically you don't have to do that. But I think it would be best. This is a pastor looking at a young man saying, I think it would be best and more effective for you. It's going to be a problem if you don't. It will be a stumbling block to others. Now, we can go into Romans and talk about all this in a little more detail later. But I want, this, I want this to be understood. The idea is, I, Paul, Paul saying, I don't want you to be the reason somebody doesn't believe, doesn't receive the gospel. Okay? And Timothy had enough respect and confidence in his pastor that he said, you know what, Paul? If that's what you think I need to do, I'll do it. Now, all that's very important because there are certain things that, that we do, that maybe I do and you do, that may not be law or Bible. But if they call somebody to stumble, I need to be very, very careful. Is everybody with me so far? Paul would talk about this in Romans. He would talk about if it offends your brother when you eat meat... Don't eat meat. It's very simple. If that offends your brother, then don't do it. Now, I know when we say the word offend and in the 21st century, we're thinking, well, my Lord, we're not going to be able to breathe because that offends somebody. <laughs> Am I the only one that thinks that? I understand, I understand what I'm saying. I'm not, there's always going to be somebody offended. But what I'm trying to say is there are certain things when living for God, we have to we have to be uh, uh, we have to be filled with the Holy Ghost and walk in the Spirit. Because if we're not careful, we can get so caught up in our newfound freedom that we cause others to stumble. Trust me, I see this firsthand all the time. It's a lot of times it's a generational thing. It's an elder generation saying we didn't do it that way, and a younger generation saying I don't see anything wrong with it, and it's that tug of war. Okay, And it's, okay, well, what do we do here? Well, sometimes you just got to say, you know what? I'm going to stay away from that because it might offend my brother. Okay, Now, I hadn't always been good at this. I'm, just, I'm learning some things I'm learning. Some, gray, these, some of these gray hairs that are starting to show. Okay, that's what's, you, you start learning some of this. Wait a minute. It may not be wrong. I saw something a while back, won't go into details, but I saw something a while back uh, in one of our churches somewhere between uh, here and uh, the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, they did something and I thought, they, they have every right to do that. But I don't know if that was wise. Because that's such a hot topic, hot button issue. That may have just offended some brethren. I've seen some of that enough to know that we've got to be careful with that. This is what's happening in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Paul is trying to get Timothy to understand a very important principle. Like There, there is a very important principle in the Word of God and in, the, and in the church. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, there are some things that I can't, I'm sorry... There are some things that if you, if you do or if I do, that they're direct violations of the Word of God and we've got to stay away from that. I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the stuff that, doesn't, that we don't have Bible for. We may have cultural or, 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 or 
cultural standard or, or maybe even a, a pastoral preference. But we've got to understand there are some that don't understand that and may cause a stumbling block if I partake or if I do or if I practice that. I want to be careful. Why? Because I want to go to heaven with you. I don't, want to, I don't want to go to heaven without you. Amen. Well, glory. So that's the first three verses of Acts 16. The Bible says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained to the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. They delivered the letters of chapter 15. And so were the churches established in faith and increased in number daily. The apostolic church is a growing revival church. Did y'all catch it? It is a growing revival church. It is not God's will for the apostolic church to stagnate, decline, and even die. It's not the will of God. No matter what happens in our culture, no matter what happens on the world stage, it is the will of God for the church to be a stable and even growing organization. Now I want to be careful using that word because when I say that word organization immediately we sometimes think of the the United Pentecostal Church International and I thank God for the UPCI. I'm a part of it. I like to tell people I'm a company man. Okay? I thank God for the UPCI. But the UPCI is not, first of all, the only organization going to heaven. And just because you belong to the UPCI doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Well, glory. But the church should be alive and well, pressing forward, winning souls, reaching the lost, teaching and reaching and making disciples. The churches of Acts 16 were established in faith and increased in number daily. Amen. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and in the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed, saying unto him, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Paul and Timotheus and Silas and some of these guys, are Luke, they're traveling with him. They're traveling, they're doing the work of missionaries, the evangelists, they're seeing people saved. But they are led of the Holy Ghost. As they go into these regions, they try to go into these cities and, and something would happen. Or maybe the Lord would speak to them and say, don't go there. The Holy Ghost would say, don't, don't do that. I want to direct your paths Until they realized they came to a very important crossroads. And a vision came to Paul. And Paul saw a man. He knew this man was from Macedonia. He knew he was from the the region or the city known as Macedonia. And this man is saying, come to us and help us. And he knew immediately what had happened. The Holy Ghost had shown him where he needed to go. I say all that to say this. I think sometimes we forget as apostolics. That it is okay, in fact it is very apostolic, to be led of the Spirit in reaching people. I prayed it today. God, give me somebody that's hungry. Send me to somebody that's hungry, that's needing a word from God. That's needing to hear truth. That's hungry and ready. There are people, unfortunately, that are not ready to receive truth. 
If you don't believe me, will you believe Jesus? Jesus said that the, the sower went out to sow in the field and he took the seed and he cast it and, and, and some fell on thorny ground and some fell on a, the rocky ground and some fell here and some fell on good ground. The disciples said, what does that mean? He said, well, the seed's the word of God. The sower is, is God himself. And, and, and as he goes and sows, the, 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 the good ground are those that are ready and the bad ground is those that aren't ready. Now, that's a very simple, simple version, but that's what he said. The idea is simple. The heart has got to be ready. When Jesus came, he, he, we saw him fulfill what Isaiah had prophesied, that their heart, hearing they would, or hearing they would not hear, and, or hearing they would not understand, seeing they would not receive, that Jesus had come. They, they were hardened even though they saw him in the flesh. Okay? So some people aren't ready. We've got to make sure that we are praying and asking God, Lord, give us direction. Show us where we need to go. Direct our footsteps. Help us to reach people who are ready to receive the word of God. So after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. There is something powerful in knowing you're in the will of God. Ask me how I know. <laughs> I, I thank God those moments when I know I am in the will of God, when I, when I have no doubt uh, that I'm where I'm supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to do. Those are great. There's a great feeling, a great confidence in that. And, and that's exactly where Paul and his missionary band found themselves. They, were, they knew this is where God wants us to be. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia and unto the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. When she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Such a great revival began to be poured out in Philippi that God began to move in a mighty way. It began to provide uh, for the work of the ministry. God began to send people who were hungry. Things began to happen. Why? They were in the will of God. They knew where they were supposed to be. They were in the will of God. Been directed by God himself. So they came with, with expectation. Believing that God was going to do something great. And he did. They were having revival. But I'm going to give you a principle here. The devil hates revival. Amen. The devil hates revival. And notice what happens. Verse 16. It came to pass. As we went to prayer. A certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us. Which brought her. Her master's much gained by the soothsaying. This handmaiden, this slave girl, had been possessed by a devil. And for lack of a better term, she was being used as a novelty, fortune teller, etc. to help her masters gain money. She became a, a, a novel, almost like a circus freak. And the spirits in her allowed her to know things and see things that nobody else could know. And she would tell people their, their story or their, 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 their past or, or, or something about them that nobody else knew. And people would pay great money to either see the show or shut her up. And so that's what they did. And this little lady, possessed with the devil, recognized the men of God. 
Everybody else couldn't see exactly who they were, but she knew exactly who they were. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. Every time Paul stepped foot on the streets of Philippi, this little damsel girl was right there, declaring him to be the man who would show them the way of salvation. Now, wouldn't that be awesome? If every time you went to the cafe, the local nut, for lack of a better term, that's a Greek term, <laughs> would run to the door, point his or her finger in your face and say, I know you're an apostolic Pentecostal. You're filled with the Holy Ghost. Now we, we would think, as weird as that may be, we might think, bless God, they know who we are. Paul, though, does something that's a little strange to me. The Bible says that when she had done this many days, it grieved Paul. It upset Paul. And it upset him so bad that he turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Why in the world would Paul do that? Two things here we need to know. First of all, Paul was grieved two things. First of all, he was upset that this damsel, this little girl, this young lady, we don't know her exact age, this slave girl, was not just a slave physically, but a slave spiritually. Paul sees her condition, the torment that she's in. And she's declaring, because of the Spirit in her, she's declaring him to be the man to show salvation while being bound herself. And Paul says, over my dead body. This Spirit's not going to control you anymore. It's time for you to get salvation. The second reason he's grieved is that God doesn't need a demonic escort. God doesn't need hell to herald his arrival. When hell begins to proclaim, there he is, he's coming. What's happening is, is they're getting credit and credibility for knowing. And God will not share his glory with another. He's a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. And so every time that a devil approaches the presence of God, what does God do? Study in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Gospels. Every time Jesus walks into a situation where there's a devil, the first thing he says, shut up. He commands him to be still. He commands him to be quiet. He tells them, stop speaking. He binds their mouth. Right? There's too many times... That we think, well, well, we'll just, we'll, you know, we'll just go in and make a big deal and it'll be dramatic. No, no, no. God doesn't want hell to get any credibility, and God will bind the voice of hell. He will bind the voice of hell to shut the voice of hell so that He can get all the glory. That's exactly what Paul's doing there. He's taking authority over this spirit. Said, no, no, no. You're running your mouth way too much. Okay, 
Let's keep going. When he does that, their master saw that the hope of their gains were gone, and they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceeding trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. The multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks? They're having revival, seeing miracles, seeing demons uh, cast out. And for their efforts, they get to go on trial, they get beaten, and they get thrown into jail. And it's not just any jail cell. They make sure that they are bound in stocks and they are put in the innermost prison. We're going to make sure these jokers don't get out. And you've heard the story, if you've been around Pentecost about three weeks, you've heard this story, because every preacher preaches on praise, talks about this right here. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. They begin to worship, they begin to praise God, they begin to thank God for what He had done. I don't know how it happened, I don't know what they sang, I don't know all the details surrounding, but something got on them, and they said, you know what, I know it's crazy, I know it's dark, I know it stinks in here, we're hurting, we're bound, but you know what, did you see the look in her eye when that devil came out? Did you, do you remember what happened when, 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 when Lydia got the Holy Ghost? Do you remember what happened when Dorcas was raised from the... Do you remember the stories? Do you remember what God's done? And they got to praising the Lord and worshiping. And suddenly there was a sound or a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. And everyone's bands was loose. Not Paul and Silas's bands. Not their prison door opened. Every door was opened and every band was loosed because they worshipped God. Now, I know we get excited as apostolics. We start talking about this chapter and we're, we, we want the organ ramped up and, and, and we want to hang from the chandeliers and do cartwheels down the center aisle. I know all that. But it's really true when we're in our darkest, bleakest moment, praise will still prevail in spite of the circumstance. There's something about worship that lock, unlocks uh, locked doors and unlooses the bounds of sin. God begins to work. And what's really cool is if, if this side's going through it, if this side will start worshiping, they can unlock this side's prison. If he starts worshiping, he can release me. The reality is there's something about praise that God begins to move. Well, it could be what the psalmist said, that he inhabits the praises of his people. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, Corinthians tells us there is liberty. Amen? Amen. Well, they begin to worship. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. He called for a light, sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They've, they've seen this. These guys were beaten and messed up when they walked in, and now the whole prison's released. What's going to happen? They must be the real deal. What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord 
and to all that were in his house. So what happened? He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. That's very important. They said, you got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people think that's, that belief is simply a mere acknowledgement. That's not what it's talking about. Because his belief is the same as Matthew, or Mark 16. He that believed and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The same principle is here. When you believe, you obey. So he believed. He said, okay, uh, there's something up here. There's something I need to know. They taught him a Bible study, and he obeyed the word of the Lord and was baptized. Amen? And when he brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the sergeant, saying, let those men go. The keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. You're free. Bless God. Oh, Paul, he, he, he rough. I like what Paul says. He says, But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly condemned. Uncondemned. Being Romans. And have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privately? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves. And fetch us out. They want me. They can come get me. Well, glory. You know, when you're in the will of God, prisons are still okay. When you're in the will of God and you're seeing the hand of God, you're not worried about freedom at that point, what everybody else thinks is freedom. Paul says, no, no, no. You beat us openly. You judged us. And we didn't really even have a fair trial. You want me, you come get me. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard they were Romans. Why? Because not everybody had a Roman citizenship. Paul had a Roman citizenship which gave him certain rights, things like a free trial. Some of the things that we do in America are derived from the Republic of Rome. And uh, Paul had that right. I mean, he could have taken this to Caesar. That's how big... That's why they were afraid. Oh no, we've messed up. We've overstepped authority here. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. What happened? By the time Paul and Silas left the city of Philippi, they left under the authority of, of God. And the hand of God was on them so much that nobody could touch them. That's incredible. That's incredible. They were apostolic. And when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis, uh, forgive me, Amphipolis and Apollina, I'll get these Greek words out here in a minute, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went into them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He read Scriptures, he prayed, he preached, he talked to them, he debated with them. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. He is the Messiah. The one that we've been waiting for. He is God manifest in the flesh. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took Unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and besought, sought to bring them out 
to the people. You see here, the first part of chapter 17 of the book of Acts, we see the fight between Judaism and Christianity. How that the Jews, which did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, were losing authority and power in the synagogue. It was a political struggle. And the Bible says that they stirred the city up to the point that it caused mass rioting and people did their best to destroy the, 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 the children of God. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. They were so mad, they were attacking uh, the church. Jason had what we would refer to as a house church. It was a gathering place for the disciples and the, the believers to come and hear the word and pray and, and fellowship together. They attacked Jason's house and their complaint was these, these people, these believers, these guys that have turned the world upside down are here in our place now. My goodness, what a testimony. We can't be a, i got to say this right because I don't want you to think I'm being militant. But we can't be a passive Pentecostal church and expect to be apostolic in the 21st century. It's got to be said, these people have turned our city upside down. We've got, it's got to be, and I'm not talking about being militant. I'm not talking about being mean. I'm not talking about flipping tables. I'm not talking about hitting people, condemning people to hell, anything. I'm not talking about that. You know, be wise. But I am talking about walking in the Spirit to the point that when we pray, when we believe God, when we teach the Word of God, it may be contrary to culture, it may be contrary to our society, the Word of God may be different, but we teach it and preach it and then we pray and God works and it literally turns our world upside down. It boggles people's minds at what God is doing. Hey, that's apostolic, folks. That's what it means to be apostolic. That's not a passive Pentecostal right there. That's saying, God, you know what? I want you to use me. That means I may go into work tomorrow and pray for somebody that's sick and see God heal them instantly on the job. Amen? Well, glory. I want to be apostolic. Whom Jason has received, and these do all contrary to the Greek to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, and they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. Basically, they, they, they basically had to put up bond. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Paul couldn't get enough of this. You'd think Paul would lay low. He'd, go into, he'd get, barely get out of one city and go into the synagogue of the next, saying, hey guys, just came to preach a little bit. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. I want to point out here Thessalonica, again, place where Paul wrote two letters, First and Second Thessalonians. Both of those letters deal with persecution. Both of those letters deal uh, with the fact that there were those in the church that had even been killed for the faith. Paul writes to encourage them. And a lot of it has to do with what takes place in Acts 17. Because when they came, there was such a stir in the city that they could not, um, they could not peaceably coexist with the Christians. So they threatened them. They persecuted them. And that's why Paul would say, hey... I know there's some that are asleep, but remember, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain. 
I believe that's First Thessalonians 4 or 5. Uh, he, he's trying to encourage the church because the persecution was so great. They come to Berea. And in Berea, it was a totally different atmosphere. They received the Word of God. They were more noble. They listened to what Paul had to say. They searched the Scripture. And because of that, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greek and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the Word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. It followed Paul. Immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul's left alone at Athens. Okay? And one thing you've got to learn about true apostolic preachers. They can't be quiet. Paul, just hang out here. We'll bring the rest of them to you, take a break, shut your mouth, stay incognito, stay under the radar, don't let anybody know you're here, we'll be back. Paul said, all right. And the next morning he gets up, and while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Athens, one of the great cities of ancient Greece, filled with gods of the Greek pantheon. Literally, a place filled with idolatry. Backed by incredible finances. A place of incredible learning and knowledge. This is the capital, the birthplace, the, the epicenter of Greek philosophy. This is... Where the upper echelon of scholars go to sit at the feet of great philosophers and teachers. And yet Paul looks at it and says, I see nothing more than a city wholly given to idolatry and in need of a Savior. So what does Paul do? He disputed in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. And then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others some, uh, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine wherein thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Paul's preaching. He's trying to reach people. And the learned of the city, the scholars, the philosophers of the day, those uh, trained in the, again, the upper echelon of, what they called the upper echelon of education, found Paul and said, hey, we're, we're intrigued by this thing you're talking about. Why don't you come teach us? And they sat him in the midst of uh, what we, next verse will tell us, in the midst of Mars Hill, which is, uh, think of it like the university campus. They're there to, to hear what he want, he's going to tell us. They're intrigued. They're going to debate it. They're going to take the merits of it. They're going to debate the pros and the cons. They're going to dissect it. They are so excited because they're going to hear some new thing. 
And this is what Paul says, talking to a group of idolaters and a group of what many considered to be the world's highest intellectuals. He says this, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. All of a sudden, he has their attention. You know, I was passing through the marketplaces. I was passing through your areas of devotion. And I see you have a temple or an altar or an idol to every God imaginable. I see Zeus. I see Apollo. I see Diana. I see all of these gods and goddesses whom you worship so superstitiously and so devoutly. I see all of this. But I was intrigued because when I walked by, I saw an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. You were so worried that you would miss something that you decided to worship an unknown God. Really what he's saying is not only that, but he's declaring them, and this is what's powerful, church. He's not just declaring them, about, trying to teach them about a God they don't know. He's trying to explain to them about a God that they thought they could not know. When it talks about the unknown God here, what they're referring to is very... Uh, uh, it's very platonic teaching. It's, it, it's derived from the philosopher Plato, which said that there is an ultimate God, an ultimate reality, but we can't know Him. We just see shadows of His perfection. We only see glimpses, but we can't truly know who He is. He's unknown to us. He's unknowable to us. There's no way. He's so far out there. We can know Zeus better than we can know this unknown God. We can know Apollo. We, we can know Mercury. We, we see forms of them. But, but we, there's no way we can know this unknown or unknowable God. And the Apostle Paul walks into their midst and say that ultimate reality that you're trying to figure out who he is and you're trying to learn his ways and you're trying to figure out if he's really God and what he can do and what his name is, I'll tell you who he is. Mars, the Mars Hill debate was, was not about the identification of a God they did not know. It was about Paul, a mere man, explaining that they could know what they considered to be unknowable. Am I making sense? We got too many people in the world that think the God that I serve and the God that you serve is so big and so marvelous, and He is, that He cannot be known. But that's not what your Bible says. Yes, your Bible says He's bigger, He's more marvelous, He's mightier, He's greater than anything. You can't put Him in a box. You, you can go to the ends of the earth and He's still bigger. You can go as far as you can in space and He's still greater. You'll never get to the, the full understanding of who God is. But understand this, we serve a God who says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. I'll dwell with you, you dwell with me. I'll walk with you, you walk with me. I'll be your God, I'll be a personal God. That's the gospel that, the, that Paul preached and the apostles preached in the book of Acts. 
God could be known. God could be touched. God could be reached. Not something that's so vast and unknowable. But we do have access to God. That's what he's teaching here. It's not an unknown God. It's, it, it's a, they're saying it's an unknowable God. And he's saying whom you ignorantly worship. Him declare. I'll show you who he is. God that made the world. And all that therein is. Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. Dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. The God that I'm talking about, you're right. He's bigger. He doesn't need us. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord. This God that's unknowable, the whole purpose of His creation that created everything, the whole purpose was that we should seek Him. If happily, they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. Oh, this unknown God, unknowable God that you're think, you think you can't reach and you can't know. No, 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 no. If you'll seek after Him, the whole point of creation was to get you to seek after Him, to get you to start working after Him and going after Him and following and trying to figure out who He is. If you'll start that, He's not far from you. In fact, He's very, very near. You just got to seek after Him. For in Him, we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Paul reaches back into Greek culture. About 200 years before he shows up on Mars Hill. And I forget the guy's name. I'd have to go back and look it up. I apologize. I should, I should be better prepared than that. But he reaches back to a Greek philosopher and quotes this Greek philosopher and says, this ultimate reality that we have, we live and move and have our being. Your own poet talked about that. Your own philosopher talked about that. Yeah, that's the God I'm talking to you about. You can know Him because we exist because of Him. He doesn't even just use Bible. He says, wait, you're exactly right. This unknowable God that you think we can't reach. No, He's the reason we're here. And we are His offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like a gold or silver or stone graven by art of man's devices. This unknowable God that you, you can't, you, you're, you're having problems grasping your mind around, that you're, you're, you think you can't ever access. We don't need to think that His image or His essence is like unto gold or silver or anything that we can create. In fact, he goes on, the times of this ignorance, God winked at that. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. At one time, God may have put up with it because, well, we, we don't really know Him. But now, now God commands everybody to repent. He may have winked at it then, but now, why would God wink at it then and now command everybody to repent? Because His glory had been revealed. The glory of God, the unknown God that these pagans worshipped, the glory of the unknown God had been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And so now Paul's saying the reason why you better repent is because you don't need an altar. You don't need a, a, a stone altar or an inscription or an idol or a temple because the God you and I serve has already been revealed through the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was saying in Colossians 1.15 when he said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from every creature. Well, glory. I'm not going to get near as done as I thought I was. <laughs> because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. What did Paul say? He said that God that you think is unknowable. I'm going to tell you who he is. He's calling us to repentance because that man has been raised from the dead. That glory has been revealed. That glory has been... His, his identity has been released for us to know. His name is Jesus. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. What was the key to Paul's message on Mars Hill? It was simply the identity of the and the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all. I wish I could say it was something more profound than that. It really was. This unknowable God that you worship. I know who He is. He's not unknowable. We have our being through Him. He's near us. We just got to seek after Him. And if you'll seek Him, you'll find Him. Church, that's the core of our message. If, we don't, if, you, if you don't get anything else out of what I'm saying tonight, get this. The core of our message is the identity of Jesus Christ. The core of what we believe. Take everything else away. Give me this message. I know the other is very important. All the other has its place. But everything else will fall without this core doctrine. If you don't believe me, study every church organization since the first century. And as soon as you take the identity of Jesus Christ away, the church loses its power. It loses holiness. It loses everything. Throughout history, for the last 2,000 years, it's all the same. The core message that the apostles preached, whether they were standing on the streets of Jerusalem in Acts 2, or they were standing on Mars Hill of Acts 17 in, in the city of Athens, they preached the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm blaming you, because you got me fired up about all this. We've had some conversations, and the truth of the matter is, this is the core There's a reason why Jesus looked at Peter and said, Whom do men say that I am? Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail again. What are you building the church on? Are you building the church on Peter? No, Peter's not big enough to hold the rock. He's not, he, he, he's not big enough to hold the church. The rock I'm going to build my church on is my identity. That's why you can go into a Bible study 
and build relationships with people and talk to them and you start teaching about the oneness of God and one of two things will happen. It'll either break or it'll shut down. <laughs> you start talking about Jesus' name, baptism. It'll either break or it'll shut down. You can talk about grace. You can talk about works. You can talk about holiness. You can talk about speaking in tongues. You can talk about repentance. You can talk about anything else. But when you start talking about Jesus, because hell fears a church that knows who Jesus is. And if we're going to be apostolic in the 21st century, we had better get a revelation that Jesus is not the second person in a Godhead. He is not just another historical character. He is not just a good teacher. But in Jesus dwells the fullness. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we are complete in Him. If you don't like this preaching, it ain't going to get any better than this. I'm sorry. This is, just, this is my heartbeat, folks. I want to be apostolic, but to be apostolic, i got to know who Jesus is. Amen. Are you thankful you know who He is today? Well, glory. Woo. Hallelujah. I was reminded again last night how just talking about who He is will sure break some things. Got excited last night. I called my cousin, Brother Wayne Wright, after Bible studies about 9.30 last night. And I said, man, let me tell you, it was awesome. He said, you know what? I've heard it mentioned several times. And I'd heard the same thing. He said, he said, but I've heard it said, if you want God to move, if you want to see miracles, if you want to see people get the Holy Ghost, just start preaching on oneness. It's the core of who we are. It's the core of who we are, church. It's the core of who we are. And if you have questions about who Jesus is, first of all, come talk to me. I will do my best to answer biblically what it means. But second of all, don't take my word for it. Take everything I just said. Go take your Bible and go home and for the next seven days, pray and read. Read and pray. And say, God, show me. God will show you exactly who He is. If you don't believe me, ask Paul. Who art thou, Lord? Well, I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. I don't know of a clear point in your Bible to give you the identity of Jehovah of the Old Testament than Acts 9 and 5, where God tells Paul, on the road to Damascus, I'm the very Jesus you persecute. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful I know who He is tonight. Would you stand with me? Would you lift your hands? And let's just love the Lord tonight. We love you. Thank you.